Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back again to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki. I'm here with John Mitchell again this week. Today we're going to be talking about spring practices, looking around at each of the Power Five conferences around the country, and also a look at the group of five, uh, seeing some of the big storylines coming out of each of them this spring. And then we're going to dive in to talk about some of our formative college football experiences, the games that really shaped our love of the sport, and um, games that really had an impact on how we follow the game and how we love the game. Um, with that said, how are you doing today, John? Man, I'm doing well. Uh, I'm, I'm getting closer and closer, right, to, to getting some real football back going, right in the middle of spring practices and scrimmages and stuff like that going on. So I know there's been several scrimmages that took place uh, this past weekend and all that. So uh, I know Alabama had a scrimmage. So getting to see some of the new players and uh, seeing how the depth charts are going to play out and everything, just really exciting. So it's just going to be fun to talk about. Yeah, certainly. I know um, we're looking at breaking this out a bit today and looking at a couple of the, you know, big storylines with each Power Five conference and also, you know, who's the next big group of five team on the horizon and a couple of other stories from those conferences. But before we get into that, I just wanted to ask quickly, um, are there any general things that you like to look for when you're watching spring football? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the main things that I like to focus on with with the spring is kind of looking for for growth from some of the some of the younger players that you might have seen uh, kind of break out a little bit last year. It's kind of always interesting to see these these kind of stars in the making and see what they might be. Kind of getting a an idea of who might be even the next breakout player for, for different schools and, and stuff like that. That might be a topic we really discuss after spring practice. Once we've had a better look at, at some of the teams, cause it's still kind of, kind of new and everything like that. And then kind of seeing maybe even some schematic changes. If you look at some of the coaching changes and seeing how different teams are going to look going into next year than they've looked the year before. What about, what about you? What do you like to look for? You know, I, I the biggest thing that I always and keeping an eye on in the spring is does everyone stay healthy? You know, um, giving these players extra reps, uh, obviously football injuries can happen at any time. And, but really once you put them into that situation where they're, they're getting in motion, especially after a couple of months away from the game, there's always that risk. And I think especially for, you know, the teams that really are looking to be contenders in the college football playoff and within their respective conferences this year, that's always something I'm looking for in the spring is is can teams stay healthy and can they get to to the off season, you know, in good shape in that regard. Yeah, you've got several teams that are already kind of looking at holding out some players for the spring who have minor injuries. I know for Alabama, for instance, Terrell Lewis, who is a really good uh, edge rusher for the Crimson Tide. He missed all of last season with a torn ACL, and he's mostly healthy now, but Nick Saban said the other day that they were probably going to hold him out for most of the spring, and he's got potential to be an All-American next season. They're wanting to hold him out just to kind of keep him healthy because he's such an important piece for the team this season. So yeah, I think the, the health is obviously the at the forefront, anybody with any kind of even 
Nick or anything like that wrong with him is going to be in the black non-contact jerseys and kind of going through, uh, just kind of going through the motions, learning the playbook and not kind of going through contact. Yeah, and I mean, that's another thing that generally is always fascinating to me is how many reps do players who really are established first-team starters get during the spring? Um, You know, part of that, as you said, is getting to see players who might break out and getting reps for younger guys who might need to take on an increased role in, in the upcoming season. But for those guys who really do have their reputations intact and who are known performers, there's there's always a limited utility and uh, cost-benefit analysis that has to be thrown into the equation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You don't want to lose anybody for the year in in March or April or anything like that. You know, it's not not worth it. Obviously, the the reps, but I think even this time of year, mental reps are just as important as physical reps. You know what I mean? So going through even like the classroom setting, sitting there with your position coach and him pointing out things you're doing on the big screen. I think those kind of reps are just as important this time of the year, just as much as it is to, you know, go out there and make a tackle or carry the football or whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. And that's huge no matter where you are in your college football career. I mean, you know, upperclassmen, Mm -hmm. grad students, they benefit just as much as the, you know, the early enrollee who's really getting his first taste of spring ball. In that regard, Mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to, to kind of go conference by conference and, uh, I think let's start with the conference that has the defending champion, the ACC. One of the things I think obviously is really, you know, I was keeping an eye on and and want to continue to keep an eye on this spring is how Tate Martell looks for the Hurricanes. You know, the big question was whether or not he would get the opportunity to even play for them this year or whether he'd be getting scout team reps. And the fact that he is able to take the field come August is it, it really makes this spring that much more significant as he tries to get acclimated to a new system and a new conference. Yeah, and if Martell's the real deal, he could be the missing piece to get Miami back toward you know contention in the ACC and maybe even New Year's Six contention again uh, after kind of a down year this past year. Uh, with you know Manny Diaz coming in for his first year, if he can figure out the quarterback position, they lost a lot of contributors. I know on the defensive side of the ball, but he's kind of he's a defensive coach, so that's kind of his thing. So if they can figure it out, and if Martell ends up being as good as as he probably thinks himself he is, I know he's kind of a cocky cocky kid, which a lot of times that's good for a player of his position anyway. So if he can kind of be the real deal, then you know Miami could take a big step, and they would probably be the the favorites in their division this year I would say if he is you know as good as he might end up being yeah and I, I, you know I think part of that as well just the acclimation process is familiarity with his receivers really learning how his offensive line works around him all of those things are really what spring practice affords at that first critical opportunity to get that that familiarity and so that's that, you know, just how well he's able to perform in that system is something to really keep an eye on for me, especially because that division looks, you know, once again, like it's it's going to be an open race and Miami can really step in and get another chance at the ACC championship this year. If the coach. I'm sorry. The Coastal is so open. I saw this on Twitter. I thought it was interesting. I don't know if you saw it. If Virginia wins the Coastal this year, that'll be the seventh different Coastal Division winner in the last seven years. 
that's got to be the only division that's the case. That's how wide open it is. You know, that it's been kind of, I mean, no one projected at the beginning of last season. Anybody can say they did. No one thought Pitt was going to win the Coastal last year. And they did it, and they ended up finishing 7-7, seven and seven, which might be might be the most Pittsburgh record I've ever heard in my entire life. Undoubtedly. Well, I think the only one that can somewhat mirror it is the Pac-12 South in recent years, how you've had every team now with Utah. I think what, uh, yeah, because Colorado won one. Did UCLA yeah, UCLA played in the first Pac-12 championship yeah. when it was at Autzen Stadium. Yeah, that Stadium. would be everybody. Yeah, so that you know that's right there in the mix as well in terms of those you know wide open divisions that have really been anybody's game during the college football playoff era. But with you know that's that's one thing I'm definitely keeping an eye on. Um, another thing that really hit me is you know Willie Taggart is already sort of beleaguered in his second season in Tallahassee. You know, I think success or failure for the Seminoles this season is really going to rest on how that offensive line looks this year. Yeah, no matter no matter if it ends up being Blackman getting the starting job or if the Wisconsin transfer Alex Hornibrook ends up getting the job there. I mean, it all it's, it's going to start and finish on the offensive line. They've got a lot of talent at the skill positions. You know, Cam Akers is one of the best, most talented running backs in the country. If they can block for him, he could have a huge year and could be a real difference maker for Blackman or Honey, Hornybrook under center for, for the Knowles. And, you know, like we, we talked about this last week or the week before, for Willie Taggart's sake, I really hope they have a bounce back year this year because I think he got a lot of unfair criticism. The cupboard was pretty bare when he got to Tallahassee. A lot of people don't believe that just because, you know, it's Florida State. You don't think about Florida State being bereft of talent you think about Jimbo Fisher one of the top coaches in the game immediately getting things rolling at Texas A&M but they you know they had some issues they were coming off of a a, a just barely getting into a bowl game in Fisher's last year they had to schedule a a, a reschedule a game at the end of the season to even get there yeah. and you know so everybody gets on to, to Taggart for the bowl streak ending but you know they they've got the potential if they can figure out the line they could have a bounce back year they played some close games early in the year last year like I know they blew the lead against Miami where they were up what 27 to 7 ended up losing 28 27 so I mean that's the difference in them going six and six and making the bowl and everybody <laughs> probably you know not being okay with six and six but six and six is never going to be okay in Tallahassee for Florida State at any point I mean they ran what Bobby Bowden out at the end of his career because he wasn't winning enough games. I mean, he's one of the legends of, of the game. So, yeah, his second year is going to be important for him because, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they struggled with five and seven, six and six again, if they go ahead and let him go because they're impatient there. Yeah, really the big question, you know, the biggest question is Clemson obviously is is Clemson at this point. You know, two national titles in the in recent years. They've got Trevor Lawrence back for at least two more years. And really, like, watching the conference more generally, can anybody show any signs of being complete enough to take on that Tigers team? It, do, it really doesn't seem that way, right? Because I know Syracuse lost some key pieces after a good year. Eric Dungy's moved on. Uh, NC State lost Ryan Finley and some top receivers and several good defenders on their team as well, and they were one of the one of the better teams last year. So I mean, really, what team in the ACC even has a pulse to be able to compete with Clemson? It looks like I mean, at least early on, unless something changes, it's going to be a, another walkover for Clemson, like it was last year. No one really challenged them 
last year. I mean, when they went, they played Syracuse. Syracuse kind of came close to getting them. But also Trevor Lawrence got knocked out of that game with a concussion, yeah. too. So they were down to what really amounted to their third quarterback because that was the same week that Kelly Bryant had left school. Yeah. So I I can't see it. Clemson's too good. Even And, I mean, Clemson lost some pieces, too. If you look at some of those guys on defense, Christian Wilkins, Dexter Lawrence, all those guys on the defensive side of the ball, Cleland Farrell, they lost a lot of guys on defense. But as long as you've got Trevor Lawrence, as long as you've got uh, Travis Etienne at running back, and as long as you've got Justin Ross at receiver, they're going to win a lot of games. I'd be surprised if they didn't run through the ACC again. Yeah. Um, you know, looking around that conference, you you see a lot of teams that have potential, like we said, where like if everything falls into place, they could be, you know – a relevant top 25 team looking at one of those New Year's Six Bowls. But I, I, I'm i with you there. I really the, – the only team that can really beat Clemson in that division is is Clemson. And the only team right. that can really stop Clemson from winning that conference is the Tigers themselves. Yeah, Clemsoning no longer means dropping a, a weird game. You know, it used to be – Used to be every year you could count on Clemson losing to somebody weird. Even when they were winning a lot, they you know they'd lose to a Syracuse team that was four and eight or something like that. But I mean, last year they were as dominant as, as any team's been in a long time, and I think they're the safest college football playoff bet right now. Talking about the beginning of April, looking into to September, I mean they would be the the easiest choice if you had to pick one team that you thought was going to be in the playoff. Totally. Um. Yeah, so I think, yeah, those are the big things to watch around the ACC. Uh, how about the SEC? I know you're a big SEC guy, and you've written about it some recently. What are the things that you really want to keep an eye on this spring there? Well, you know, obviously it all starts for me with Alabama uh, kind of coming back. Uh, Nick Saban's talked a lot so far this offseason about rediscovering uh, the identity of the team. And I think that was something It's kind of weird to say. And it's, it's, it's stupid to a lot of people because Alabama went 14 and one and finished second last year. You know, every team, but Clemson would have swapped with them in a heartbeat, 14 and one sec champions, orange bowl champions. I mean, it's a great season everywhere, but Tuscaloosa yep. and Tuscaloosa. It's a failure. I mean, in Nick Saban's eyes, it was a failure. I mean, everybody talks about the staff turnover and everything, but a lot of those were guys he wanted out and wanted to turn it over because he wasn't happy with how things went last season. At 14-1, and one, like, that's wild, yeah. right? So he he's talked a lot about specifically on defense because there was some cracks. I've written about this. A lot of people kind of ignored it for most of the year, but there were some cracks on defense, and I kind of pointed it out. I remember writing about the national championship uh, ahead of time, the preview, and I called it a toss-up game. Like, I – if it wasn't for my personal bias, I probably would have picked Clemson to win the game outright. Like it was that close to me. And I thought Clemson had, you know, a really good chance of winning that game. So really for Alabama, it's kind of rediscovering that defensive identity, finding that alpha on defense that was missing and stuff. So with them, there's that. And then obviously Zach, the other question would be who challenges Alabama this year? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at teams who have a lot of question marks, you know, Gus Malzahn, for instance, at Auburn is, is probably playing once again to save his job. Uh, And, uh, you know, really the questions around quarterback and several other positions there are, are, are a lingering thing that they're hoping to answer this spring. And that's something definitely that, that Auburn fans and others around, you know, that follow the SEC are going to keep an eye on. And then, 
but really like the and then you've got teams like Kentucky, you know, where they had a really breakout year last year, but like you mentioned with Syracuse or some of these other teams that have that one great year, you know, those classes build up and they have that that breakthrough, but then players graduate, you know, they're losing pl- players on both sides of the ball like Josh Allen and Benny Snell that are yeah, that's two of the best players in program history, not even two of their best players recently, two of their best ever yeah. come through Lexington for football. And so, you know, that's that that's something to keep an eye on as well. Um, but the thing that really cracks me up is Rich Rodriguez. Looking at how that's going to play out in Oxford with him coming back to the coordinator ranks after being a head coach for as long as he has been, and, you know, really, it, it's going to be interesting to see how the philosophy meshes with Matt Luke, who's, you know, offensively has not necessarily been of the same mindset that you would traditionally see from a Rich Rod offense. And so how are those two going to coexist is another thing I'm really interested to see this spring and whether they can, you know, really find that balance between a couple of, you know, strong personalities. With a ton of offensive turnover, too. Like, Rich Rod's got his work cut out for him. You know, they're losing. They lost Jordan Tiamu at quarterback. They lost a trio of receivers, A.J. Brown, yeah. DeMarcus Lodge, D.K. Metcalf. So that's a lot to replace. Lost Greg Little, their starting left tackle. I mean, a lot of talented guys gone from there. Man, Rich Rodriguez working for Matt Luke. Life comes at you fast, man. Like, that would have not been – like, that's not even on the same wavelength as you said that five years ago. Five years ago, you wouldn't even know who Matt Luke was, really. So Exactly. No, it, it, looking around all of college football, it kind of feels like we're in bizarro world heading into this new year. I mean, the spring shows, you know, old head coaches becoming new again with Mac Brown and with Les Miles and, um, you know, like – just seeing names like that back on the sideline, it's it's it, it's like cognitive dissonance, and I think I think it's the same thing with seeing Matt Luke being Rich Rodriguez's boss. It's uh, right. or ostensibly, you know, that's how it looks on paper, and that's really going to be the thing to watch is whether it actually plays out that way. Because I I, I think you could very quickly see some some discord in that program if they don't find a way to coexist. Right. I think one of the other interesting things to me is LSU coming into next season because they finally had the – they kind of had a breakout year last year under Ed Orgeron. He kind of got the – um, some heat off of him because, you know, he kind of came in last year. A lot of people thinking they weren't sure if he was the right guy for the job. And, you know, they came out and they won 10 games, got the Fiesta Bowl win over UCF, which was big for them. But he still got a big monkey on his back. And the whole state of Louisiana has that monkey on their back, and that monkey's Alabama. Mm-hmm. You know, they've lost to Alabama now, I believe, eight straight times, seven or eight straight times now, and that's just not something that flies. And a lot of teams have those kind of losing streaks in the SEC against Alabama, uh, but not at a program like LSU. You figure they're going to at least win three or four out of ten years against Alabama, or at least get a few. So they've had that for a while, and this year LSU's got more returning production than any Power 5 team. Like, if you look at it from what they had last year. So they've got a ton of talent returning, but they've got to go to Tuscaloosa next year. Yeah. So that's obviously a huge mountain to climb. I mean, you saw still how far they had to come last year when Alabama went to Baton Rouge and won 29-0. So I think that that hurdle's still there, and that's got to be a hurdle that Orgeron's got to clear eventually if he wants to be the guy there long term. 
Uh, yeah, completely agree. And, and seeing how things mesh there in, in Baton Rouge is, an, again, you know, every you can really say that about everywhere in the SEC West because that's the the satellites that are orbiting around the 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 planet that is Alabama. How how they're able to come together this spring will really define whether these teams have any shot at all of pulling off an upset against them. And, you know, can Georgia also finally get over the Alabama hump? I don't think there's been two more excruciating losses the last oh. couple of years and Georgia losing to Alabama in the SEC title game the year before in the national title game. And Kirby Smart's starting to get a little pressure on him. I know it might be kind of crazy to say, considering he's already won an SEC championship. He's led Georgia out of two New Year's Six games and a national title game. So, But if you, one of the more interesting things I saw coming out after Georgia lost to Texas was someone posted about how similar the beginning of Mark Rick's tenure in Athens has been to, to Kirby Smart's. Like, if you look at their records, they almost, they're almost identical. Mark Rick won an SEC championship, I believe, in his second year at Georgia as well. Yeah. And that, that team also would have played for a national title if there was a playoff back then. There just wasn't a playoff, and I believe it was 2002 when that happened. They finished, I think that Georgia team finished third. Yeah. Just like Kirby Smart's Georgia team finished third. So if there wasn't a playoff that year, then Georgia never would have got a shot. We would have had a, what, a Clemson-Oklahoma title game that year in the old BCS system. Um, and neither of those teams even played in the national championship game. Exactly. So it's interesting. It's been a long time. Georgia's really hungry for a national championship, uh, it's been a long time coming. They've been recruiting, I mean, fantastically. They're right on par with Alabama every year in recruiting now. So they've got the talent. A lot of those recruiting classes are starting to develop and getting to be more upperclassmen for Kirby now. So if if not now, then when? When is it actually going to happen for them? I, I think that's a great question, especially because with Dan Mullen going into his second year at Florida, you've got to figure that things are going to turn around there soon as well, um, just given the caliber of coach he is and the ability to recruit to a place like Florida. Yeah, and I think Jeremy Pruitt's got things moving in the right direction at Tennessee, too. I thought they showed some signs of life last year. They've got a lot of returning talent for next year as well, been recruiting well. So, I mean, really, you've got kind of the traditional SEC East schools, Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, that are all kind of on the up. Uh, so you've really got to think, you know, Georgia's, their chance in the East and, and in the SEC might, their window could be closing. I mean, it's stupid to say because they're recruiting better, but it's getting tougher and tougher every year. I don't think Kentucky's going to be able to stay on the level that they were at this past year. With a team like Kentucky, you look at them, every three or four years they have a really good team because they build up and they've got seniors like Benny Snell, seniors like Josh Allen who are able to take it. But who kind of steps up in those roles for them this year will be interesting as well. Totally. You know, those are obviously, you know, you've got the twin axes there with Alabama and Georgia and the way they've been in recent years. And whereas the big question is who's going to, elevate their game from the SEC West, I think you really do see those teams that are starting to develop in the East and are rebuilding the prominence. Um, where would you like to go now? I know we have, you know, we're going to take a break after we talk about a couple of conferences. Let's go into one more before we, we take a break. How about the Big 12? All right. Um, you know, obvi- you know, for me, honestly, the big story are new head coaches. I, I think that's really going to be an interesting one. Um, you know, Dana Holgerson jumping ship to Houston left an interesting sort of 
uh, situation there in Morgantown. And then you have, you know, Les Miles coming back to the game, the Mad Hatter's back, and he's back in Lawrence of all places. And right. then, um, you know, Texas Tech as well, you know, having gotten rid of rid of their alumnus and moving on to Utah State head coach Matt Wells. It's going to be interesting to see how he fares in Lubbock. Um, so, you know, each of those schools are, are ones that I really want to keep an eye on how how things develop under new staffs in the spring, uh, because that's really the first chance a lot of players who were there under the incumbent staffs are going to get to to function and see how they're really able to perform. And especially for, you know, team, you know, players at the top of the two deep on both sides of the ball, whether or not they're still at the top of the two deep by the end of spring, just in these new systems. Right. Yeah. And Texas tech's always an interesting one for me because I've always kind of adopted them as my second team, because you know, Zach, my brother went to Texas tech, graduated from there. So I've been to Lubbock several times. So, uh, obviously, I'm interested to see how Matt Wells kind of does there because they've got, you know, they've got if Alan Bowman can stay healthy, he was really impressive as a true freshman for them last year. And if he can stay healthy, and that was his problem last year, he had some some pretty scary injuries and stuff too. Like he had some, I forget, some kind of internal organ kind of issues that came up last That's year. I can't right. remember exactly what it was, but it was pretty scary. He had a collapsed lung. That's what it was. That, yeah. He had a collapsed lung and then complications from the collapsed lungs. So That's terrifying obviously but when he was running i mean he he ran kingsbury's air raid just as good as anybody has and that's including guys like baker mayfield and patrick mahomes so obviously the system will be different he doesn't run the traditional air raid i think the biggest thing for texas tech and their fans is they just want to see some defense finally like their defense the last five years or so has been historically awful so they're wanting to see some improvement on that side of the ball so if he can get the defense you know, even to top 75, 80 level, you know, not even exactly. the floor is so low. Just, if they can do that just, keep the offense good, they can win seven or eight games. Just, just double digits in defensive <laughs> columns, you know, that's that's, that's going to be a huge thing. And, and coming from, you know, looking at the, the Aggies teams that Wells ran, I, I think there really is a potential for improvement there. Uh, he has, you know, he had some teams that really did – generate respectable defense in the Mountain West. And obviously, you know, the two, you know, stepping up to the Power Five is a different beast. But we're also talking about the Big 12, where, like you said, a top 75 defense puts you second or third in the conference, usually. So, um, yeah, I I think that's, you know, probably one of the big stories. But also, like, Neil Brown getting his chance now at, at West Virginia is going to be a fun one to watch as well, looking at how those those Troy teams did under him. Yeah, I mean, Troy was outstanding last year. They've been outstanding for years. It's about time he got an opportunity at a school like that. And I think that was kind of a, an under-the-radar hire that I don't think really got talked about all that much this past offseason. I think it kind of got glossed over. But I think that could work out especially well for West Virginia, especially because, you know, West Virginia is at a geographic disadvantage in the Big 12 because they're not, you know, near any of the other Big 12 schools. So they've kind of got to recruit some off-kilter kind of guys to fit their system and everything. And I think he's the kind of guy who could really have some success there and I, I'm really fired up about him getting the opportunity. I think West Virginia, specifically getting you know Austin Kendall, 
transferred from Oklahoma after losing Will Greer, you know, he could immediately come in and, and be a really good player for them. And those Troy teams are always so fun to watch. Like they were always, they always seemed so well coached, so fundamentally sound and always just played the game, you know, the way you would expect it to be played. Certainly. Yeah. Um, I, I like you, I'm really excited to see him get that chance. I, I always loved watching those teams. I loved the way, especially that they would play you know, up to, to big competition. And I think that's something that West Virginia really had, had like a hot and cold streak with in recent years under Holgerson, where you'd see them take care of business against the teams they needed to. But when it came time to, you know, really forge it in the fire against what's supposedly a comparable team, they would fall short. Um, and that's, that's something that Brown certainly won't have his teams doing. Yeah, they don't fall asleep. I mean, they a couple of years ago went to Baton Rouge and beat LSU of all teams. Like that was one of yeah. the bigger upsets of college football that year. Uh, so yeah, I I'm excited about what he can do there. I think one of the big things, also obviously, maybe the biggest storyline is is Jalen Hurts now at Oklahoma getting his opportunity to be a starter again uh, for a for a. A, a coach in Lincoln Riley who's kind of been a quarterback whisperer the last couple of years, you know, cultivating and developing a couple of Heisman Trophy winners in a row. Could Jalen Hurts be the third straight different Heisman Trophy winner in Oklahoma? That would be the first time that's ever happened. That would be um, kind of incredible with three different players all transferred. Too, I, I, was kind just, of interesting. I was just going to mention that. Yeah, it would also be the first time in history that three straight transfer players had won a Heisman Trophy. You know, really speaking to what we talked about some last week in terms of, you know, players really getting increased opportunities to go to new schools and to get chances to start more frequently, whether it's because of graduate transfer rules or NCAA waivers. Yeah, they could have a really devastating rushing offense next year. If they can they lost a lot of offensive line guys. Uh, you know, Cody Ford, Drew Samia, those kind of guys are gone. So kind of figuring out the offensive line will be big, but if they can get that sorted out with Hertz and a pair of uh, running backs last year who both one topped the thousand yards, another was at like nine fifty. Yeah. You know, so they had a really good rushing offense last year. And, you know, Jalen might not be the same passer Kyler Murray was, but not many players are, to yeah. be fair. I mean Kyler Murray's numbers last year were historically good. But he doesn't have to be for Oklahoma to still be really, really good. And another interesting thing with the Sooners too is seeing what they're going to do defensively, kind of hiring Alex Grinch away from Ohio State, getting him to be the defensive coordinator. He's got a, a nice reputation as a defensive coach. Can he get that defense to take the step to make Oklahoma not just a Big 12 contender but a national title contender again? Because that's been, that's been what they were missing. If you watch the Orange Bowl against Alabama, I feel like Alabama could have named their score against Oklahoma. And really Alabama yeah. had trouble stopping Oklahoma in the second half. But I don't know how many possessions – Oklahoma could have gotten a stop on Alabama in the second half of that game. So figuring that side of the ball out will be more important than anything Jalen Hurts does on offense next year. Certainly. And for any Big 12 team that wants to be relevant on the national stage, taking that next step and finding a defense is always going to be the big thing. Um, just because, like I said earlier, it, it, the defense is not historically, or the conference has not been historically known as a, a defensive juggernaut in the least. Yeah, and I think uh, Texas, too, I think we'd be remiss to not mention the Longhorns yeah. coming off their best season since 
2009 last year, getting double-digit wins for the first time since then. A kind of a breakthrough season for Tom Herman. Can he keep that momentum going? Because if you look at you look at some advanced stats for Texas last year, they weren't as good as the polls would have you believe they were. You know, they finished the year with you know smelling uh, nice and like roses and stuff because they beat you know Georgia in the Sugar Bowl, which was a huge win for the program uh, to to get that tenth win and to beat a team like Georgia that a lot of people thought should have been even in the college football playoff. Yeah. So can they keep that momentum going, or is Texas kind of destined for a slip-up and kind of a step back down this year? I think we'll really find out week two, LSU goes to Austin, and we get Texas-LSU. I think that'll be a good measuring stick game for both teams to see where they are. Certainly, and I think you know it certainly helps that they don't have Maryland on the schedule this year. <laughs> for sure they can't figure out the turps for some reason for some reason um well yeah you know I, I think those are obviously the biggest things coming out of the big 12 um so with that let's take a quick break everybody we will be back in just a short moment welcome back everybody i hope the ad you listened to was orange vanilla coke just because i've had to listen to orange vanilla coke ads on tv for weeks now for the march madness so i just hope that that was what it was <laughs> anyway we're gonna move on now to the big 10 uh i know the big Ten's kind of close uh with zach and we'll talk about some of that later on because he grew up a, a wisconsin fan right zach yeah certainly um and honestly that's you know, really where my head first lies in terms of looking at the Big Ten this season, considering Alex Hornibrook is no longer the starting quarterback for the Badgers. And uh, that's not because he has graduated or anything, but because he put himself into the transfer portal, you know, which has become one of the big buzzwords of the season. And now he's he's there in Tallahassee. So, which is, wasn't that a weird spot for him to end up like not to get too off of that, but like you kind of expected as a grad transfer, he would go somewhere where he would have an opportunity, at least a cleaner path to starting because you got to figure James Blackman's the favorite to win the starting job at Florida State this year. Yeah, yeah, it was an interesting choice. And I mean, it really comes down to, you know, Taggart must have been one hell of a salesman. Um, I really don't know any other way that could have worked out because, yeah, like you said, if you're really trying to rehabilitate your image as a quarterback and put yourself into any position of, you know, building a professional career, that seems like an odd place to be going, especially this season, like we talked about in the last segment with the question marks hit on the offensive line for them. Um it could have been it could have been a thing we talked about this before. It could have been something that's bigger than football too. Maybe Florida State had the course of study that he really liked and yeah. really appreciated that because could be a guy like Warnerbrook knows that you know college football is it for him. He's probably not going to make it to the NFL. So it could have been something as simple as that. Yeah, it, it very well could be that it, as simple as that. And it, if that's the case, more power to him. Yeah, right, whatever decision took him there, great because. It could honestly be a very good thing getting back to the Big Ten. It could be a very big thing for the Badgers. Um, You know, they have Jack Cohn there, and Graham Mertz is coming in as a really highly touted uh, recruit. And so it's going to be really interesting to see, I think, this spring, which one of those two takes the inside track heading into the fall. Um, Because for the Badgers, 
they need one of them to do it. And they need one of them to really step up and take charge of that offense. Because, you know, this is the last season they're probably going to have Jonathan Taylor in the backfield. And wasting that, the potential that's there for the team, especially in the Big Ten West, where, you know, people's big hype is a Nebraska team with a, a ton of question marks around it. Um and a team like Northwestern that's also bringing in a new quarterback. And, you know, the, the the field is wide open there for Wisconsin to get back to the top of the Big Ten West. And it's really going to come down to whether or not one of these two guys becomes the guy under center. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, when you got a guy like Jonathan Taylor in the backfield, it doesn't take excellent quarterback play for your offense to hum you know they need they need that game manager who's not going to make a bunch of mistakes the guy who's going to take care of the football can hit some play action stuff over the top to keep the defenses honest but they can get that figured out they could be you know back to the to the top of the big 10 west again i think that division's wide open like you said nebraska everyone's focused on scott frost second year there uh and (laughs) They're getting a lot of hype because they kind of finished the season pretty solid. They played well down the stretch. But, man, the over-under that we were talking about last week was eight for Nebraska, which seems just massively inflated for a team that won four games last year, I think. So, you know, I have no doubt that Scott Frost is a good coach and is going to get things figured out there. I think Adrian Martinez is a really good young quarterback as well. But there's still a lot of holes on that roster. You're talking about a Nebraska team that – I don't think it's going to seriously challenge for the Big Ten West next season. No, they've been so gutted in terms of their depth in recent years. You know, it's one of those things where he's got, it's a lot more than a two-year turnaround like it was at UCF. And it's because you're at a level where, you know, recruiting and rebuilding is a much more, methodical process you can't necessarily count on getting a couple of flash in the pans and and instantly becoming the top of the heap um one thing also just to stay there in the big 10 west a second before we kind of shift gears to the other division um i think hunter johnson at northwestern is going to be an interesting one to watch like really a couple of years ago this guy was supposed to be 1B coming into the college football ranks. You know, he was supposed to be just as good, if not better, as Tua when he was recruited. And, you know, the fact that he the, the flavor of the month label just kind of slid right off him like melting ice cream is really to Northwestern's favor, I think. You know, because they were able to contend with a guy like Clayton Thorson for... You know, and for as good as he was in that system, they did things that made it work with him there rather than having a player that they could really elevate to. And I think the caliber of player that Hunter Johnson is really allows them to to do some things that they haven't been able to do in recent years. So that's another fun one I want to see this spring. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a great one to bring up. I'd forgotten... Uh, that he was there now uh, coming from Clemson. He's, you know, former five-star recruit. And, you know, recruiting is kind of sometimes a crapshoot. So we'll see if he's as good as he was advertised to be coming out of high school. But I think that was a massive recruiting coup 
for Pat Fitzgerald to bring in Hunter Johnson because you got to think he had a lot of options. Obviously, Northwestern, if you're not even talking about football, is an excellent academic school. So great for him to get that opportunity there. But if he wanted, he could have played. You know, 100 teams would have wanted him to come in to be their quarterback next year, at least compete. So him going there, I think it's a good situation for him because, like you said, Clayton Thorson's gone. Northwestern's coming off winning the division last year. Uh, So, and like you said, with with a guy like Clayton Thorson, who you kind of have to tailor your offense around to kind of fit what he does best, Hunter Johnson can come in and take the offense potentially to a whole other level, which could potentially make, you know, Northwestern. Uh, able to win the West for a second straight year. Yeah, and I mean, coupled with just an always defensively sound team, like Pat Fitzgerald's teams are just always so fundamentally good that you once you add greater skill to that system, it's it's going to be really interesting. It really just depends on how well he fits with with Northwestern and how well he acclimates to being in the Chicago land area and being in, you know, a colder weather situation and, you know, everything attendant with playing in big 10 football. Yeah. Like you said about Pat Fitzgerald teams, they don't beat themselves. Like you've got to beat his team by, by being fundamentally sound yourself and not turn the ball over because they're not going to do a lot of that. And then one last thing, I guess, with the West, be interesting to see if Jeff Brom can take Purdue to the next level because, you know, he got a pretty big contract extension to stay in West Lafayette instead of going to take over his alma mater at Louisville. But, you know, a lot of that, too, is kind of him being paid for what they expect him to do at Purdue, right? Because he hasn't done a ton yet. You know, they've made bowl games and stuff, but I think his record's around, what, 13 and 13, 13 and 12, something like that in two years at Purdue. So, I mean – you know, the bar wasn't particularly high, and they had some really high highs last year by, you know, the win over Ohio State oh, yeah. and, and and everything. But, you know, they also dropped some kind of curious games. So it'll be interesting if they can get more consistent in the spring and figure it out. They've obviously got one of the top offensive weapons, not just in the Big Ten, but in the whole country with Rondell Moore at wide receiver. Oh, yeah. He can line up anywhere on the offense. He can return kicks. And, I mean, he's lightning in a bottle. Uh, one of the most fun players to watch. So it'll be fun to also see him as a sophomore. Completely agree. I, I, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, because it, Purdue really was sort of one of those under-the-radar teams where any given week, you know, they could be Jekyll or they could be Hyde. And I think really getting to that point where they stay on track and they're able to produce more regularly the types of results they showed themselves capable of, obviously. It, 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 they could really be one of those dark horses in in the division if they do pull that out. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a team that beat Ohio State 49-20 to last year, and a couple weeks later they turn around and lose like 41-10 to to Minnesota. Yeah. Like, how does that happen? Yeah, and I mean, P.J. Fleck is obviously starting, you know, to get the boat rowing in Minneapolis, but... It's uh, it's still it's still Minnesota at this point. And, you know, those are two teams that are both kind of like trying to do that dance and build, you know, climb their way up the ladder in the Big Ten West. And which one of the two can really pull that off will be a fun one to see. But that, you know, I think that's something that really falls down to the once we get to the fall, we're going to see how you know, the efforts of this spring really shake out in the end. 
And that's been the B division of the Big 12 or the Big 10 for so long now, right? It's been the Big 10 East has got the power teams, the West doesn't. But there's some really interesting young coaches in the Big 10 West that could really get that division you know, in line, and, you know, Wisconsin's kind of dominated it in recent years and Northwestern taking over last year. But, you know, if, if Scott Frost can be what they are expecting him to be at Nebraska, if Jeff, Jeff Brom can do what he's expected to do at uh, Purdue, and then obviously Wisconsin still Wisconsin, Northwestern still Northwestern, and then maybe even PJ Fleck at Minnesota gets them going. Yeah. That division could be really competitive the next five years. Yeah, certainly. Um, I, you know, we we giggle about legends and leaders, but it uh, is one of those things where it, it it was really designed that way because splitting it geographically uh, shows that there's a clear disparity geographically in terms of competitive balance. Um, it, but that said, I you know I think the relative battles in each division could become more interesting because like ever since it got split into the west and the east wisconsin really was that team and you know occasionally in iowa but wisconsin really was the the juggernaut there and it was who could take it away from them right yeah absolutely but you know shifting gears now i guess to the big 10 east obviously the big storyline with with the east was urban meyer retiring at Ohio State, Ryan Day kind of yeah. taking over. Justin Fields coming in as the transfer quarterback there. Uh, yeah, they kind of had some slippage in recruiting this past year. They they dropped kind of outside of the top ten, which is it's odd to see Ohio State not finish with even a top five recruiting class. So, you know, maybe that's a, a one-year thing. They obviously have the talent. They can afford a one-year slip in recruiting and not hurt that bad. And a lot of teams would kill for the number 11 or 12 class in the country. Oh, yeah. You know? So. Uh, but I think even outside of that, the biggest thing for me with the change at Ohio State is the clock's ticking for Jim Harbaugh now, in my opinion, to finally break through and win that division, finally beat Ohio State. You know, they got embarrassed yeah. last year in Urban Meyer's final, the game. Um, and that yeah. was in that was in Ann Arbor, I believe, yeah. last year as well. And I mean, they just blew the doors off of him. And if this isn't the year that he can finally take it over with the coaching change, Ohio State, is he ever going to be able to get over that hump? Oh yeah, I mean, it was always a big question of whether it's it's an Urban Meyer problem or whether he just can't beat Ohio State more generally. And now's now's put up or shut up time for this Michigan team. Um, you know, you've got changes there in. Uh, not only in Columbus, but also looking at Penn State. Obviously, you've got the turnover at quarterback moving on to Tommy Stevens, um, you know, Trace McSorley going on. And you're going to have, um, you know, other than that, within that division, you've got big question marks all over the place. You know, Rutgers and Maryland are, are two teams that really – it, it's hard to make a legitimate case for them. Um, Michigan State could, if things turn around for them, if they finally figure out how to score some, maybe I think would be it would be a big part of that. Uh, sorry, Connor, but yeah, it they um, know they can they know they can they're allowed to throw the ball more than like ten yards down the field. Like that's not against the rules. I I, I don't know. Maybe they. <laughs> It, it, it's yeah exactly it's 
if they can figure things out and really get back to having some kind of offensive identity in in East Lansing, it's it's possible that they could have some kind of story within this division. But yeah, I think Ohio State and Michigan really are the 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 twin poles that we're looking at here this year because of the you know things shifting around at Penn State and you know really those question marks that still exist with Michigan State especially in terms of their offense um because you know it, just like we we said in terms of fundamentals with Northwestern Michigan State is another one of those teams where um they're not as inclined to beat themselves when they don't have the ball as when they do. Right. So, um, you know, I, I think that's really the biggest thing I'm going to be watching is these teams that finally have the opportunity to step up and challenge Ohio state, especially Michigan. Like, you know, we said it in the first segment, how healthy can they stay? I think that's going to be a big thing for them as long as everybody makes it out of the spring, you know, in good shape. They do have the pieces there that they could have that really finally magical season for the Wolverines that hasn't existed in well more than a decade. (laughs) Really since, you know, that last time when it was the one versus two game between the Buckeyes and the Wolverines where, you know, there was talk about a rematch in the BCS championship game then between two teams from the same conference. And so, uh, after, you know, I, I think if, like you said, if, if not now, when, and who's going to actually do it? Because if, if Michigan can't pull it out this year, um, Harbaugh for, you know, really as well as he has done in Ann Arbor, considering what he came, you know, the situation he came into there, we were talking about rebuilding and that was a project. It really was between, you know, Rich Rodriguez and then, you know, looking at things moving forward for them. It it was, you know, really from the time they lost Lloyd Carr, that team, lost its identity for a while and he had to come in and, and at least reestablish something there. And he's done that, but now you have to reestablish it fully. And part of that Michigan tradition is being a championship caliber team. I felt like there was some sass in your voice right there. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. Uh, a Michigan man does not take kindly to that kind of talk, Zach. Yeah, well, there's a reason, I guess, that I'm not a Michigan man then. Um. Neither am I, I understand. I, I think, too, uh, one thing I'd like to, <laughs> to keep an eye on, uh, and, you know, Maryland isn't traditionally, you know, a much in terms of football, but Mike Loxley yeah. has a reputation as a really strong recruiter, and there is a ton of talent in the DMV area where he's going to be kind of recruiting, if he can lock down, and his favorite thing on Twitter right now is he's posting like a brick wall going around. It's a gift that he keeps posting. Uh, but that's what he wants to do is lock down that area. If he can lock down that yeah. area and get that talent at Maryland, they could end up being a real problem in that division in the future. I don't think that's going to be next year or anything, but you know, two or three years down the road, they could really become a problem. Oh, yeah. yeah I completely agree. Uh, you know, and we've seen that the potential is there for that school. We talked about him in the context of Texas 
there is school that has has that ability, kind of like we saw with Purdue last year as well, that can spring that surprise. And I wouldn't be surprised if this spring the Terps lay the groundwork for at least one of those upsets to fall in their way next year. It'd be nice if they could stay healthy too. They've had a lot of injuries, particularly oh my at goodness. quarterback. So yeah. that's that's been kind of a devastating blow for them yeah. in recent years. Yeah, if they could at least you know keep it within their third string, they'd be doing better than they have <laughs> in recent years. So you know, and I okay, you know, I I think that's that kind of concludes what I have to say about the Big Ten. Let's um you know look at that last Power Five conference sort of shift to to the West Coast where you know where I've really been kind of dialed into football in recent years. Um, You know, there's a couple of really fun stories for the conference. And I think really the first one to look at this spring is the team that's done with spring before spring even started. Um, (laughs) You know, Arizona state had their spring game on February 28th, really quite an interesting (laughs) way of, of playing it. Obviously you can get away with that in the desert in Tempe in a way that you can't even at other Southern schools. So, you know, you know, Herm Edwards was doing that as a way of trying to maximize the off season time that the team would get and, um, you know, limit injuries and players who might get dinged up, have more time to heal before fall. And considering the fact that Edwards has come in and, sort of instituted a more NFL type of mindset to the program there. And it has paid some dividends for them. You know, it did that first season in terms of getting a couple of really good results that that weren't expected from the Sun Devils. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out for them. Because I think we talked a little bit about scheduling that first week in terms of teams moving up their games and moving around their games. But I think if this works out for the Sun Devils, we could see more teams also trying to move up their spring practices in the future. Yeah, they're all going to be copying Herm Edwards' new leadership model is what he's calling it out in Tempe, right? He's trying to be <laughs> kind of more of a CEO <laughs> type of um, a guy instead of just even the head coach. Exactly. Uh, maybe in NFL terms, he's the GM yeah. more so than anything else, kind of relying on his assistants to do a lot. A lot of people thought he would be just an abject disaster last season in college, but I was, I still, I'm still not convinced that he's not going to be, to be honest. They had a lot of talent on that team last year. You know, Manny Wilkins at quarterback, Nikhil Harry at receiver. A lot of talent on that team last year. So it'll be interesting what happens now that those guys are gone. Herm's getting his own guys in there now, if they can kind of keep that momentum. But, yeah, it's obviously you can't really talk about the Pac-12 without talking about the fact that Arizona State spring practice ended literally a month and a half ago or so at this point. So yeah. um, uh, that that division, too, is really interesting, the Pac-12 South, because you've got – uh, you know, Chip Kelly in year two at UCLA is going to be a fascinating storyline to kind of see, see if they can improve from going three and nine last year. Uh, you know, they knew, we knew there was going to be some growing pains for Chip Kelly, particularly with him wanting to really change their offensive philosophy. And I don't think a lot of what they had last year fit really what he wanted to do. But they also, if you look at, take a look at recruiting, 
they're really behind. Like his yeah. first full recruiting cycle, they were at near the bottom of the Pac-12, and that's kind of really alarming because you know whatever happens schematically, you've got to have the guys, you've got to have the players out there to execute what you want to do on offense. And I don't think he's got the guys again. I think it could end up being another really rough year uh, in LA. Yeah, um, I, I I agree with you. I think seeing who might step up in terms of his younger guys on that roster it is really going to make or break whether UCLA could do something this year. So, you know, the spring is going to be critical for them in terms of getting people really on board and up to speed because, yeah, there's so much there that still needs to be put into place for anything resembling a successful team for Chip Kelly. You know, we talk about, you know, his offensive genius, but really that developed at an Oregon team that had already laid the pieces in place. You know, under Mike Bellotti, he'd been there for a decade and had had recruiting dialed into where it was in Eugene. And obviously Chip was able to elevate that some, but it really started with guys who were, you know, three and four star recruits and, you know, consistently being able to build them up. And he can do that with players who aren't at the top, you know, who aren't five-star necessarily, but he needs something there. And it's really, it, it, it really comes down to how these first players sort of show the, the, the star givers wrong, if you will. <laughs> um, you know, really showing those, you know, ranking services for the guesswork that they are and really breaking out better than they were expected to. And that's all going to come down to the coaching this spring for them. Right. And then if you look at the other side of town at USC, Clay Helton's coming into a make or break season for him. Like a lot of people were surprised that Lynn Swan and them decided to keep him for another year. And they, you know, we're trying to make some big changes offensively with their philosophy. Obviously, they hired Cliff Kingsbury to be their offensive coordinator. He left to be the Arizona Cardinals head coach. Yep. And now they went and got a Kingsbury disciple, though, a guy who uh, also an air raid guy, uh, Graham Harrell, an old Texas Tech quarterback. And he was really – Graham Harrell will be interested to see how he does with USC because he was an up-and-coming coach. Um, a, a lot of – teams were really interested in Seth Luttrell at North Texas last year, specifically because he would have been able to bring Graham Harrell with him as his offensive coordinator. Yeah. So see what he can do with the talent level at USC. And I think whatever happens with Harrell will be probably the determining factor with whether or not um, Clay Helton's USC's head coach in, in 2020. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, the, this is if we're going to talk about coaches on the hot seat, he's got to be right at the top of the list. You know, USC is not a school that tolerates losing seasons. It, it just does not fly. Um, they're, they're, and with good reason. I mean, especially with the fact that the Pac-12 South in recent years has been anybody's game. That's just not the way you'd expect it to go. Um, it's really funny how that happened, especially once the like right at that same time that the conference expanded to 12 teams, um, you know, because that's when Pete Carroll left town was right before that falls down. And, 
since then, USC just, they don't have an identity. And this is really the year where Clay Helton gets his last chance to say whether or not he's the guy who can bring some of that swagger back to Troy for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Be another interesting part to be watched to see what uh, Graham Harrell can do with JT Daniels to yeah. see you know how much growth he has from freshman to sophomore season because he was a true freshman starting. And as easy as guys like Trevor Lawrence and Tua Tagovailoa have made it look, it's really hard to start as oh, a true yeah. freshman in college football. It's such a huge change from high school. So those guys make it look easy. It really ain't that easy. No, exactly. I, you know, I think it's one of those things where. You know, he did have growing pains and he, you know, he did do some things really well. He did do some things you expect from a true freshman player. You know, that's just the nature of being young and inexperienced. Um, But not all of that was his fault necessarily. You know, there were issues with their line there. There were issues with some injuries on the the Trojans and really... There were issues with their offensive just philosophy generally. There's a reason that T. Martin isn't there anymore. Um, And there's a reason why Clay Helton really looks like he might be run out of town last year. And a big part of that was the fact that they just didn't have things dialed in on that side of the ball. So if Harold can get this into into, back into shape in some kind of way that, that resembles just the the really fun teams that you expect from a team like USC, they have the opportunity to be just head and shoulders above the rest of the conference, just in terms of the talent they generally bring in. But it's going to come down to whether they fit into that system and whether they can really take to that. Right. And I guess, you know, shifting gears over to the, to the other side of the conference, um, you know, the big storyline, I think, too, one of the big storylines, seeing uh, Jacob Eason yeah. play quarterback again at Washington will be interesting to see if he can be an upgrade over Jake, uh, Jake Browning from last year. Uh, you know, he kind of struggled down the stretch. So Eason hasn't played much since he was a true freshman at Georgia. You know, he got usurped by Jake Fromm. Yeah. Uh, when Jake Fromm was a freshman and then he left and sat out last year. So it'd be interesting if he's, you know, he showed a lot of promise at Georgia early on in his career. So if he can be, you know, the player that he was recruited to be, because he's another former five-star guy, if he can be that kind of player, then Washington's got another really good shot at winning the Pac-12. Well, and I think that's interesting too, just from the context of it wasn't like he was run out through fault of his own. The guy got injured and Fromm right. comes in and just plays lights out. Like you can't fault him for sticking with the hot hand. But you're it, not benching Jake Fromm after going and winning at Notre Dame. No, you know? it, exactly. And um, you know, it just really kind of was a tough shake for him there in Athens, the way it, it played out. And so, um, you know, it's one of those cases where you know, some guys really get the opportunity to play right away despite a transfer. And I think the way, you know, Jake Browning obviously was the incumbent last year. But I think if if uh, Eason had been available to start, I think it would have been a legitimate quarterback battle. Just, you know, ever since that sophomore season for Browning, where he takes the Huskies to the college football playoff 
he didn't do as much these last two years. Like you just saw a downward trend in the way he was able to play. He goes from Heisman candidate to honestly an NFL afterthought at the, you know, like I, I haven't heard much buzz around him as a draft prospect. No, he didn't even get invited to the senior bowl. He ended up playing, I think in the NFL PA bowl, which is the, senior bowl rejects for a lack of better term right there so yeah. you know that division too that could end up being really hotly contested because you look at washington uh with eason coming in oregon obviously has yep. a ton of talent um with all the guys they've got returning if washington state can figure out the quarterback situation with another transfer guy taking over there and then obviously stanford is always Stanford. So, I mean, that's four really good teams who've got a really good shot in that division. I think Oregon will probably be the favorite today, but, I mean, that could be different. You're looking at it three or four months from now. Oh, yeah. Anything is really possible there, I think, except for Oregon State winning the division. Like, that would be the only truly surprising thing. Like, honestly, even the way Cal has played in recent years under Wilcox in terms of being a competitive team – they, um, it would obviously be kind of a, it, it, it would be a certain surprise to see them take the division, but I think they're going to be a team that could also challenge and ruin some of those favorites opportunity to take the division. Yeah. So, there'll be a team in November that upsets somebody like Washington or something and swings the whole division in a different direction. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's the big question in the division. Does, you know, do new quarterbacks step in and do well? Because Stanford's established with Costello. Like, he's the guy going in this year. Herbert is definitely the guy at Oregon going in this year. But both Washington schools that have really been competitive in recent years and, you know, have made the Apple Cup really relevant, they've got the biggest question marks in terms of of that key position offensively. Yeah, it'll be interesting, too, if Mike Leach can finally solve the Chris Peterson puzzle, because Chris Peterson has been a thorn in Mike Leach's side ever since he got to Seattle. He hasn't beaten Peterson yet while the two were at Washington and Washington State, so... And, you know, that kept Washington State from a Rose Bowl bid last year. Had they beaten Washington? I mean, they still would have had to go and win the Pac-12 championship. Um, But And, you know, it was a tough environment. That was in the snow and everything. uh, A tough place to play, especially for an air raid offense, having to operate in that kind of inclement weather. Of course. Maybe maybe this time they can finally get over that hump. But his – Chris Peterson's defenses have just befuddled Mike Leach's offenses. Oh, yeah. There's yeah they they're just kind of it, it's the one puzzle that they cannot put together. Yeah, I agree. I think that's it for me on the Pac-12. I think we wanted to talk uh, about uh, a quick segment on the Group of Five as well. We were going to discuss potentially who could be maybe the next Central Florida coming up. And again, the 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 next Central Florida might still be Central Florida. It wouldn't be a shock if they were uh, the team that got the the group of fives bid to the New Year's Six again this year at all. I think where it starts for me, Zach, what I'll be interested to see is I think Houston's got a really good mm. shot at maybe being the next Central Florida with, you know, Dana Holgerson obviously has um, 
faith enough in what Houston can be as a program that he would jump from a Power 5 program at West Virginia to Houston. I think part of that could be, I think Houston has a plan to eventually try to move up into the Big 12 um, at some point down the road. But they've got a lot of talent. You know, De'Eric King back. Uh, Houston's got a really good shot at being um, one of the better teams in the group of five. And I mean, they might have they might have been there last year if King doesn't get hurt and if they had some you know, if it can shore up some defensive shortcomings and stuff like that. But I think that's probably the team that I would point to right off top um, yeah. from them. And then obviously if you go out west, Fresno State, mm-hmm. I think with Jeff Tedford, he's a really good coach. Uh, they've got some pieces to replace, particularly with Marcus McMarion gone at quarterback. they got a really interesting running back in Ronnie Rivers. Yeah. So those are the two teams I think I would point to, Houston's long-term potential and maybe Fresno State more short-term. Yeah, I, I, and obviously, you know, you throw in teams like, you know, one of these teams is one that's obviously done it before. Houston went, you know, a few years ago to the Peach Bowl, and um, as the representative of the group of five, and so they have a track record of being able to do it. And I think coming from the American more generally makes it easier to be that team that steps up. It just has that reputation as a mid-major conference of being, you know, at the, at the top of the mountain of those smaller quote unquote schools. And, you know, I put that in quotes because obviously a a school like central Florida is huge. Um, a school like Houston obviously is not a tiny institution. It's just the conference that they're playing in. Like you said, Houston even right now has the resources that if you plunk them down in the Big 12, they could within a few years, like just like TCU was able to, they could have an impact. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And they, I think that's obviously Houston's goal is to be another TCU down the road. And, you know, TCU was a terror in the in the non-automatic qualifier division for for many years before they moved into the Big 12 and then quickly adapted to being uh, a contender in, in in the in the Power 5 as well. Exactly. They were right there in the running for the first college football playoff and that's really a testament to being, you know, a a team that has those resources in a place like talent-rich Texas. And so I think that's I I think you're absolutely right where it's it's going to be a team like UCF or even like a South Florida or a Houston um, where you're in a recruiting hotbed where you can pick off enough really talented players who just aren't going to other schools in the state but want to stay in state um, just because there's only so many opportunities with a team like the Longhorns or the Gators or, you know, wherever they would traditionally want to go yeah i agree uh it'll be interesting i think uh the the group of five race could be really interesting i know you'll have many many thoughts on that as the uh off season wears on as we get into the season most certainly yeah um um, but with that uh we're going to take one more quick break before we dive in and talk a little bit about ourselves with some of our formative experiences uh, as college football fans Welcome back, everybody, for our final segment of this week's podcast. Uh, John and I are going to be talking about some of the college football games and some of the college football experiences that have really shaped our fanhood over the years. Um, 
especially because, well, John got to grow up in a place where actually going to the games was a possible experience for sure. Um, I was definitely much more geographically isolated from any stadiums themselves. So um, should be a fun perspective just at looking how we arrived at the point of, you know, being a couple of guys that love talking to you about college football every week. So, John, um, I know you're the one who uh, sort of had this idea initially in mind. So um, what games really strike you as having formed who you are as a college football fan? I think the first one that always comes to mind for me is the the 1999 Iron Bowl. Uh, That's really the first college football game I remember watching or caring about i'm sure i saw some games before that but it never really struck me as much of anything until then and it was weird because my memories of it is how nervous i was kind of leading up into the game it's weird because i don't remember ever really caring before that but i remember how important this game felt because alabama was looking to wrap up the sec west and get a shot you know to play florida for the SEC championship game, but also it was, um, I believe the fourth or fifth iron bowl ever played at Jordan Hare stadium in Auburn. And to that point, Alabama was over. They had never won a game at Auburn before they used to play the game every year in Birmingham. I think <laughs> 1989 yeah. or so was the first time it ever got played at Jordan Hare in Auburn. So <laughs> this was Alabama's first real opportunity uh, you know, the first real opportunity, but it felt like this was the year. And if not this year, it felt like what well, was never going to happen, you know. So uh, Alabama was right there, ready to clinch the West. Auburn was, I think, teetering around even bowl eligibility. I believe it was Tommy Tuberville's first season as mm. Auburn's head coach. I wouldn't swear by that. Um, but if it wasn't, it would have been the year right before for sure. Right. What I remember most is watching it, you know, with my dad He had kind of laid out the stakes for me, so I knew it meant a lot, even more so than wrapping up the West and getting a shot to play for the SEC championship for uh, the first time in a few years. Uh, What really mattered was getting that win at Auburn. And the game didn't start out all that well. Auburn was leading at halftime. Uh, I remember uh, we bought the VHS tape after the win because it was Victory on the Plains is what they titled it. So back when VHS was a thing, we would watch it all the time and I remember they had some really cool um insights to the game like there was film stuff in the locker room and uh Chris Samuels was a senior captain for the team uh left tackle ended up playing many years for the Redskins in the NFL yeah and he like gave this impassioned halftime speech talking about how this was his last iron bowl and he was not going to lose this freaking game like you know in more expletive terms as well so of course he you know paved the way in the second half for sean alexander who you know was my first like the first guy i could point to as that's my favorite player right there because he was he was just incredible i mean he was carrying guys on his back he put the whole team the whole alabama team on his back in the second half scored two or three touchdowns, Alabama won, and it was just the best thing. I mean, they went on, beat Florida for the SEC championship the next week, and then lost in the Orange Bowl to Tom Brady and Michigan. Oh, uh, yeah. Because the origin, by the way, this was the origin of Alabama's kicking struggles. They missed because in overtime, down 35-34, they missed an extra point. That's, I'd forgotten about <laughs> that, but yeah, ouch. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, that that's the one that really stands out. If I'm talking about really my first Zach, what's the first kind of what's the game? See, I guess you have one that sticks out see, to you that really sucked you in. See, it's it's funny you mention that because growing up where I did the northwest corner of Wyoming, um, it's hard to really pinpoint one game for me. Like I was always just generally a sports fan growing up. Um, and in terms of football, like my dad liked the Badgers, like it was something that kept ties to home, but he was always more of a Packers fan. He was always more of a pro football game guy when it came to, to the gridiron game. And, uh, so we, you know, I, it was really something I developed on my own is really a, a fanatical level of fanhood for college football. And I think that really stemmed just from like, I remember in elementary school when it would be so snowy and blizzardy, you couldn't go out in, you know, on a November Saturday home from school because Wyoming, obviously, like there's some crazy weather there (laughs) and it made for some interesting situations as a kid and obviously really fun. But when you were socked in, um, I totally remember like trying to cycle through the fiber, you know, we had seven or eight channels, but there were like, you know, we had all the networks. So you'd try to find whatever games you could. Um, but I also remember we'd get the Denver post, the Sunday edition of the Denver post every week. And they'd have the, like, they'd have, you know, last week's results, but then they'd also have like the season schedule for, they'd print it for all 90 or a hundred teams that were in the, the top division at that point in one, a football. Um, and so it was really interesting. Like I know every week, just like it was my chance to go through numbers and look at all that. And, you know, I would, you know, try to find out which games would actually be televised in my area and map out what I'd get to watch that week. And, Honestly, it was a lot of Notre Dame football because that was right around the time that they signed their exclusive contract with NBC. So you at least knew they'd have some game most weeks. Um, Pipe to you live from South Bend. Uh, So while I was never really a fighting Irish fan, you definitely, I, I think like many college football fans, maybe my first formative experience was learning how to root against the Irish and for whatever team was playing them. Um, but yeah, I, that was really it for me. There's, you know, I talked a bit early, like last week when we were talking about those, those favorite victories, the first one that really stands out is like a game for me was that 94 Rose bowl. But by that time, I'd become a pretty fanatical fan of the game. And so it really did mean a lot by the time I got there. And it was really just a matter of developing that love of the game in watching whoever I could on the on the TV that week. Right. Yeah. I, I You know, it's funny you mentioned newspaper uh, kind of looking through at the scores and standings and stuff. That was something I always loved doing when I was little mm-hmm. is at my dad's job. They would always get the newspaper there. We never got it delivered to the house was, you know, getting it and looking at even standings. Yeah. To see, Hey, what's the back when, you know, you weren't going to notice the AP poll right away. So it's like, Hey, where, who's, you know, where's Alabama this week in the AP poll yeah. or, you know, who's ahead of us in the SEC West or whatever. And then looking at other teams and stuff too, it kind of broadened my horizons away from just specifically Alabama football and getting to follow other teams as well. So I think kind of newspaper is kind of an invaluable 
uh, part of my college football fandom as well because it always was just thrilling. And I use that for every sport, like any season or an NBA season or whatever, kind of seeing the standings and stuff. It was always kind of fascinating to follow how different the world is today than it was, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, it's it's funny. We've already mentioned VHS and newspapers now <laughs> in terms of our, you know, those formative moments of fanhood. And in 10 years, the fans that are, are talking about football like we are right now are probably going to be, you know, talking about pulling up the scores that night and watching highlights on Twitter and whatever else pops up. You know, throw- can you imagine not watching the game with a VR headset being exactly. right there on the field? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, but you mentioned like I, I, you know, last week we talked about it a bit as well as stadium experience. Was there like also that formative stadium experience for you? Yeah, and then last week uh, I mentioned because yeah. uh, one of the big. Like even victories, I remember was the 2002 Alabama Middle Tennessee State game at Legion Field, mm-hmm. and the old dilapidated Legion Field sitting on the piping hot bleachers and listening to your backside sizzle because it was so yeah. hot there at the end of August. So uh, that was the first game I ever got to go to, um, and it was a blast. I didn't go to Bryant Denny until I think it was might have even been 2006. Alabama played like Florida International. We never got to go to watch any really good games. I never got to see any really good games until I went to school there. I got to see some cool ones. Like I saw yeah. Alabama play Ole Miss and Tennessee, and I went to an Iron Bowl one year. So all those really stick out. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, seeing it in the state, seeing it on TV and seeing it in the stadium is a different thing. If I wasn't hooked, and I was hooked already on college football, but if I wasn't hooked, that 2002 game would have absolutely done it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was obsessed. I mean, I'm still obsessed with the sport. I still obsessively follow it. Obviously, we're talking about college football, and it's, you know, what, five months or so until the season still, and we're (laughs) passionately talking about the sport. So, I mean, I would – I would write up like my own narratives when I was a kid. Like I would like fantasize about, okay, the national championship game two years from now is going to be Ohio state versus uh, Miami. And I would write up like play by play of what would happen in that game. Cause I was just obsessed and couldn't get enough. Like that was the junkie part of me coming out, I guess, and being a college football fan. It's, it's never gone away. You know, it might not be as obsessive all the time because I'm an adult. You know, you have your adult responsibilities and stuff that you've got to deal with and you can't just focus on football all the time. But it's it's a beautiful game. It has so many flaws. Um, There's so many things wrong with the sport, but at its apex, at its best, I mean, it doesn't get any better. Yeah. Oh, no, I agree. And I also completely understand where you're coming from in terms of, you know, really most of our formative experiences are the ones that happen before we even hit those teenage years often, you know, those preteen, even a little bit younger, depending on circumstance and location and everything else. But the one thing that really sticks out to me as well, um, in terms of writing about college football was the first time I actually got to go into a press box. Um, And it's a funny thing because it was at Providence Park or the stadium that's now Providence Park in Portland, Oregon. And it was a Portland State Vikings game. Um, I believe they were playing Northern Colorado, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, really great big sky matchup there. 
Um, Nigel Burton was the coach at the time, and um, it was Kieran McDonough at quarterback. Um, really fun team that uh, I loved being able to follow that one year I was at the school and writing for the campus newspaper. But it's really, you know, even though it was happening happening at a stadium that had been retrofitted for soccer, and um, there was just something that took me back to that sort of childhood sense of wonderment and actually being able to go up into the different parts of the stadium where most people don't get to go. You know, it was just that little bit of, like, added adventure to it of getting to walk across, and then you're in this sort of rickety-looking press box built, you know, hanging down from the, the roof on the, the let's see, it'd be the west side stands there in the stadium. And it was just so dang exhilarating to get to be there and getting paid to write about a game. Like, it just blew my mind. And the opportunity to do that really helped carry me forward in where I am both as a a student looking at going back to grad school again for a PhD this time in, you know, studying the history of sport, as well as just somebody who gets to talk about college football every week here, who gets to write about it at various locations. Um, That was another truly formative one at a point where I was going back to, to college after a decade away and was really wondering what what niche I wanted to to sort of latch back onto as a writer. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it's cool because you get to, you know, kind of live out those even childhood fantasies now that you're an adult. Like, it's always that sense of, like you said, wonderment looking up. Like, hey, people are in that press box up yeah. there in like an official capacity. So getting to actually step into one of those is, is really exciting. And, you know, it's kind of – you become numb to it after you've done it a few times, but mm-hmm. – it's still, you know, if you really take time to kind of look at where you are, you're like, you know, this is really, really cool. And even, you know, I've covered a, a decent bit of high school football the last yeah. couple of uh, seasons and even getting there and doing it. I mean, football is a beautiful game. It's barbaric. It's archaic. It's, you know, all the things that is, you know, can even traditionally be wrong with society. But it's so it's so fun. It's such a great sport. It's such a great sport to watch. And those kind of formative things that molded uh, our fanship. I mean, I I know everybody's got them. You know, you can always point to something that kind of developed who you are. And it's not something I can ever really see going away. Like, I can't imagine not obsessing about this this sport, this big, dumb, stupid sport that can make you as sad as we were both, what, two weeks ago yep. talking about our best, our worst losses and as happy as we were last week talking yeah. about our best victories. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, you mentioned the, the barbarity and how archaic it can be. But I think the flip side of that in looking at sort of that, you know, a game from a completely different time and of a different era is – that also brings up those feelings of nostalgia and of Mm -hmm. that shared history and those common bonds across time. And that's why it continues to, to hold so much, but it's also, you know, just in terms of looking at it just purely as a sport going beyond the violence that's inherent in the game, it is tactical and it is really strategic 
And in that regard, one thing that I really wanted to bring up in terms of formative experiences were just the, like, one thing that really got me into college football from, you know, rather than just being a fan of specific teams, um, were the NCAA football games. Like, both from being able to actually understand what I was watching on the field, I think there were, you know, there were definitely generations of individuals, you know, cohorts of kids who learned the game from the game (laughs) and really learned how the game worked at a fundamental level by playing those video games. You know, even kids who couldn't get it done and were never going to go to the college level could begin to understand and break down what they were watching week to week. And so that really was instrumental for a kid who never did play football at any level um, to really begin to understand the game in a way that certainly helped me also now that I write about it. Yeah. I I didn't even really think about the, the NCAA football game, but that's a fantastic point. Like, that was my favorite day of the year pretty much was the release date of the new NCAA game. Like we got to go get it. We got to go get it right now. Even back when you couldn't download rosters to get the names on it and you're just playing with QB number 12 and RB number 27, you know, whatever. It was still just, you know, a blast to play those games. And I hate, you know, you mentioned how formative it could be for kids to play and how fundamental it could be even your in your knowledge of the game for so many kids. And I hate the fact that the game's not out anymore and there's so many there's a whole generation of kids coming out now that don't get that same experience because you're right. I mean, you know, for those who don't play football and even even those who do, it can be, you know, a learning experience, like getting to figure out you know, hey, what's a slant route? You know, yeah. what's a play? What do you mean when you're saying play action pass or a cover two or something even more complex? Little things like that, little idiosyncrasies of football that are kind of glossed over and everything. And I won't profess to be the greatest X and O's football no. guy or anything, but, you know, that that I mean, I think that's a fantastic point. I, I, I wish they could figure out how to bring the game back in some capacity because, you know, selfishly obviously i'd like to play the game again yeah. and then unselfishly if you think about the the generation of kids who are really missing out on what was such a great piece of the sport yeah certainly and obviously um where i stand with it is release the game and give that money to the players who are being represented there um but you know that's that's not necessarily formative but it certainly got me to that that you know the formative experience certainly got me to that I guess, more militant stance against where the NCAA stands with this now because it was so valuable to me. Um, And I didn't really necessarily experience those games until after I was out of high school and, you know, had dropped out of college for the first time and, you know, was working in kitchens, but like playing football with guys that, you know, 12, 1, 2 in the morning after you get off a shift and you're hanging out with the same cooks you're around because they're the the only people who are still awake at that point um, right. and, and ready to party after finally getting off work. Um, yeah, played a lot of that game. And it's, yeah, it, there's definitely some nostalgia there too, as we said. That's just like another layer of nostalgia within the entire experience of college football. 
Yeah, and, and I think I think the game could be actually formative. Like my nephew, for instance, just turned or turned nine. He's going to turn ten this year. He's never really gotten into the sport, and I wonder how different it would be if he had a game like that because he's big into video games and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I bet if he played it and really started learning, kind of what was going on, I think it would help because, you know, he watches a football game and doesn't see anything that makes any sense to him. Yeah. You know, you and I watch a football game and it makes sense. He watches it and he's like, well, they're just going to keep hitting each other. Like that's, that's the game. Well, and you're like, yeah, well, you've got to figure this out. You know, and well, he, and he maybe wouldn't show the interest anyway, but I think maybe if he had something like that, it could be, could be helpful for him to, to develop, that love you know obviously everyone likes different things not everyone's going to be college football junkies who are willing to talk about uh college football for as long as we like to talk about the sport but you know i I do wonder if that has an effect on on kids growing up right now well i think you know not just the like tactical and strategic side of it but the fact that every stadium was in there like you really got the opportunity to see those sort of elements of pageantry that are also part of the game You know, you got the opportunity. They put mascots in there for crying out loud. You know, Um, unfortunately, you couldn't actually tackle the Houston Cougar with the Oregon Duck. (laughs) But, you know, you could see both of them there on the sidelines. And it it really it was just from all those little details to the way they integrated it with the television experience of it and making it really feel like a game day by the time those last releases were coming out um, on all those. You got to, yeah, you got to feel like a college football player, right? Like you could go inside, you know, historic stadiums like the Rose bowl, like the big house, the horseshoe, all these places that are, you know, mostly for most people are unattainable, even as a fan, how many people are going to get to travel to these kind of places. So you get like kind of an on-field look and the way they were able to do all that to make it look like it looks on TV is kind of incredible. And I think that's another really good point. And also you never played mascot mode on NCAA. You could play the mascots against each other. That's right. You could. I had (laughs) forgotten about that. Oh man, that was beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Such a weird addition, but also so exhilarating. I understand. So oddly satisfying, you know, (laughs) right. Watching Aubie, the tiger get speared by big Al. I don't know why that made me so happy. (laughs) Well, um, are there any other uh, formative experiences or memories that come up for you at this point, or shall we call? I'm sure this? there's others, but I think I think that's probably good for now. I know we'll have many more of these kind of topics that we want to approach in the future. Certainly. Um, so yeah, with that, everybody, thanks again for tuning in so much. Um, we'll be back every Wednesday, uh, morning shooting you this podcast. So, uh, stick around. Uh, we look forward to your, uh, repeat enjoyment. Hit us up on Twitter, obviously at Z Bagalki and at JL Mitchell 93. So with that said, we're out for this week. Have a wonderful week. Enjoy next weekend's set of spring games and we'll catch you on the other side, everybody.